Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello, welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I have with me Cindy Taft. Cindy has over 35 years in the oil and gas industry of experience, most recently as the VP of Shell's Global Unconventional Wells Operations, which we will get into. At Shell, she led a team of over 350 staff and 1,200 contractors across five countries, accountable for an annual spend of one to $1.2 billion. She is currently the CEO of Sage Geosystems, a growing company based in Houston, providing solutions for both energy storage and geothermal-based production deep in the earth. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, so I read about you and your company in an article in The Economist about energy and really was in the context of the political climate that we're currently operating in. I started doing some homework and just was fascinated to me. Geothermal is something that we hear, you know, about, we kind of know what it is, but it's not really getting the same exposure as some of these other quote unquote green technologies. And especially considering your background in big oil, I just was fascinated to have a conversation with you. So maybe let's start there. You had a, a long career at Shell. Talk to us a little bit about kind of what that experience was like working with such a huge oil and gas global corporation and what exactly the, your last gig as this VP of unconventional wells, what exactly that was? Yeah, no, Brian, you know, working for Shell was fantastic experience. Um, Shell is a very, you know, dedicated company as far as the environment and as far as you know, getting oil and gas out of the ground economically, but it, it was a it was a great learning experience. So my last role, I was vice president over Shell's global unconventional assets. So we had assets in Canada, the U.S., South America, and at one point even in Ukraine and China. So in in this role, I led my team to 
basically drive down costs in this unconventional shale space over a time period of uh, about five years. We were really needing to get the cost down while improving safety. So we, we drove the cost down while the, the scope actually increased. And when I say the scope, we were drilling wells that were longer and we were putting more completions in the ground. So we were, we were installing about 25 to 30 fracks in these horizontal laterals. And so during this time period, we, again, drove the cost down, but also we drove the safety performance to a, to a higher level. And that's while our tasks increase. So as, as the lateral lengths and the number of fracks increase, the number of tasks that we were doing in a day increase. And so we were able to uh, actually improve safety over this time period, which I was really proud of. Yeah, and I don't think people fully appreciate just how revolutionary fracking and horizontal drilling was in terms of, you know, for the U.S., we were importing a large amount of energy at a certain point, and now we're actually an exporter of energy because fracking has allowed us to access, you know, an unbelievable amount of oil and gas. So, and a, a lot of it thanks to these big companies that put a lot of R&D work into there. You, yeah, you're spot on. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, so over the last 15 years, the unconventional shale revolution has has improved not only the horizontal drilling performance and, and cost, driven them down, but also on the fracking side, the fracking has increased the amount of reserves you can get out of the ground. And, and so that technology is actually what's opened up the door for geothermals, mainly for geothermal and hot, dry rock which is called enhanced geothermal systems, which require you to use a form of either drilling or fracturing to create kind of an artificial reservoir in this rock that's hot, but it's, it's rock that doesn't necessarily have water to bring that heat to the surface. And so, yeah, the unconventional shales revolution has actually opened the door to that EGS uh, type of approach in, in geothermal. Yeah, I mean, that's the perfect segue, right? You, this technology, this fracking, you enabled... Morgan referred to, you referenced it, but EGS to really be viable in today's marketplace. So maybe kind of educate us a little bit here. What exactly are we talking about when we refer to geothermal energy and, and, and EGS? Yeah, so geothermal is a lot like oil and gas. So we use a well bore drilled into the ground to access the resource. But in this case, the heat is the resource rather than fossil fuels. So going from oil and gas to geothermal is a natural segue for anybody that wants to use their oil and gas skills in renewables. The, the challenge with geothermal, there's a huge, huge potential geothermal, but the challenge is, is that we really need to reduce the cost so that it's cost competitive with wind, solar, natural gas, and coal. And, and so if you look at EGS in particular, that's, that's actually referring to getting geothermal out of hot, dry rock again. So if you, if you look at the geothermal potential or the geothermal capacity around the world, it's about 16 gigawatts. And it's all from currently what they call conventional hydrothermal. So you find a formation that not, not only has the heat, but it has permeability, it has porosity, and it has actually natural production of water. And that water is what brings the heat to the surface. So the, the challenge with those resources, though, it only represents about 2% of the resources around the world. 
So if we want to tap into the other geothermal resources, we have to be able to tap into that hot, dry rock, which is, again, you're drilling for the heat, but you don't have that natural permeability and you don't have that that natural water production to, to bring the heat to the surface. So then again, you need what we use at SAGE is a fracturing technique to create an artificial reservoir in that hot rock. And then you pump water from the surface. You get that water to uh, circulate into that fracture. It's heated by the earth and then it carries that uh, heat to the surface. And then you can use that heat either for electricity or for direct sheeting. But that's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about EGS. Right. So today, under the conventional machinations, it's really just some places in California, Nevada, where it's accessible. Your technology and your company would, would open up a, a much larger accessibility. Would it still be geographically limited? Is this mostly going to be in the Western U.S.? Or is, is there other places that it could be deployed? No, I, so you're spot on. So first of all, conventional hydrothermal, yeah, you do think about the geysers in California. You think about Iceland. You think about where that steam or hot water is close to the surface of the earth. And and yeah, as you said, those manifestations are very limited. If we're able to crack the nut for hot, dry rock, it definitely makes geothermal anywhere possible. Now, is it anywhere, anywhere? There is a there there is a cost component. So there's some areas where you can let's just use Texas along the Gulf Coast. You can actually access really hot rock at about sixteen to twenty thousand feet. All of these depths are currently accessible using existing oil and gas equipment, which is what Sage is focused on. But if you go to other parts of the world, you have to drill then to thirty or thirty five thousand feet to or, or greater to access those uh, that hot rock. And that's where it, it gets, the, the economics get challenged. So the answer is you can't put geothermal actually anywhere unless you can really drill economically to that hot rock. And so that would be what the challenge is. Yeah, that makes sense. And let's talk about kind of the where you all are today with the technology and, and what motivated you to make that move from, from Shell? Because I assume... Are Shell and Chevron the big oils? Are they working on geothermal tech internally? Yes, yeah, Shell is definitely my my uh, group was actually the group that did the cost estimates for geothermal back in the day before I before I left Shell at the end of 2020. So Shell is definitely still looking at uh, geothermal. Chevron and and other large oil and gas companies are also looking at geothermal, but they're also balancing their por- portfolio with other renewables. But what what made me make the move is I, I really did want to get into renewable energy. And, you know, as far as my background being in oil and gas, again, geothermal is the um, natural segue. It's, it's the opportunity for me to apply my experience and my expertise from the, you know, over 35 years in the, in the oil and gas industry. And so that's, I, I'm excited about where geothermal is. That's the other reason why I got into it. it. To me, we're on the part of the learning curve where wind and solar were 15 or 20 years ago. So if, if we crack the nut in geothermal, I mean, we're really going to be able to grow it over the next five to 10 years. And when you say that curve, from my understanding, you know, solar specifically, I think more than wind, but just the cost has been exponentially 
decreasing over the last 10 or 20 years, right? Is that what you're referring to when you talk about the curve? Yeah, it, it's it's the cost, but it's through technology development. So yes, that that is what we're focused on in, in geothermal. And I think a lot of other companies are also focused on is that we've got to get the cost of geothermal down so that it is competitive, so that it can compete on the grid with these other technologies. Um, it's got other benefits, of course. It's, you know, baseload energy. It's got a very small footprint. It's got zero emissions, but the cost has to be competitive or, you know, people are really not going to want to look at it. So that's the challenge. But the way that you solve that is through technology development and, you know, basically through engineering. So that's where I think solar and wind were 15 or 20 years ago. And I think that's where geothermal is right now. So let's give people some reference points here. We talk about cost from the article I read and the very cursory homework I've done. We're talking about dollars per megawatt hour. Is that the industry standard? Yeah, that's that's what a lot of, yeah, that's one reference. The other reference would be levelized cost of energy or LCOE. And so where are you all today versus you know, traditional oil and gas or solar and, and wind? Yeah, so right now where we are with geothermal baseload is we're in the probably nine to ten cents per kilowatt hour range. And I would say that wind and solar are probably about half that right now. So we've got, we've, and, and we, we have a, when we look at the cost, and the, the waterfall chart to drive down the cost, we think we can get to a four cents per kilowatt hour in, you know, at scale. Basically, the more wells that you drill, it's just like an unconventional shale. The more wells that you drill, then you can, you can use that scale to drive your costs down. So we think with scale, we can get those costs down to about four cents per kilowatt hour, which then can compete with wind and solar. With the advantage of geothermal being baseload and, of course, wind and solar being intermittent. Yeah, that's exactly where I want to go next, right? Could you help untangle what you mean when you refer to it as baseload versus intermittent? Yeah, no, absolutely. So geothermal, you know, because the heat is there, it's there regardless of any kind of weather conditions. It's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can harvest that energy and create electricity. 24 hours a day. Uh, so that's what's called base load. Whereas wind and solar, although they're very powerful, renewable uh, energy sources, they are intermittent, meaning that, you know, either the sun needs to be shining or the wind needs to be blowing in order to generate that electricity. And, and so geothermal being a base load would help stabilize the grid because the grid has to deal with the intermittency of wind and solar in, in, in order to levelize what they can provide as far as a electricity source. Right, because that's been the biggest challenge with solar wind is the intermittent component of it, but then also this battery storage challenge. And typically the loads don't match the need on the grid, right? So right, the, the need on the grid is usually in the evenings when people are home and cooking and doing the dishes and taking baths or whatever. And that's when solar obviously is, is, is not producing, right? So geothermal doesn't have that issue. No, that you're, you're, you're correct. So wind typically will produce more at night when people are sleeping. And like you said, not really needing the electricity. Solar actually produces the majority of its energy during the spring when the weather is actually nice. And people, again, 
aren't necessarily needing energy. So the ability to move that electricity to the parts of the day or even the parts of the season where the electricity demand is high or higher would be crucial to make uh, wind and solar more effective and quite frankly, just to uh, use the assets fully. So the, these are really powerful assets, but if they're producing electricity when the demand is low, then they're they're not as powerful as they could be as if we can move that electricity to a part of the day where the demand is high. And based on the article and your website and some of the, the new initiatives you all are highlighting and working on, you've got this baseload functionality, but kind of to to piggyback on top of the commentary on wind and solar, you also have the ability to act as an energy storage battery type unit for these other technologies, right? No, that's correct, Brian. So we we have performed a series of testing in the field. So because of our oil and gas background, we know it's critical not only to be doing modeling in the office, but to actually get to the field and test it in the ground and test it in a well. So we re-entered a exploration gas well in Star County, Texas, back in uh, late 2021. And we, we, we not only installed our heat root fracturing technology, which is a downward-oriented fracturing technology, but we performed a lot of testing on how to best work that fracture. So we first circulated through the fracture, but we found that we had some of the same issues that traditional EGS has had for years and that all of the fluid that we put into the fracture did not come out of the fracture. So at first we thought we were losing that fluid to the matrix of the rock, but then when we let the fracture close, we got all of the fluid back. And so we figured out what was happening was the fluid was getting trapped in that fracture. So then we started operating that fracture more like a balloon. So you, we would pump the fluid into the fracture and keep that fracture open and then cycle a small volume of that of fluid in the fracture. That's where we realized that we have an energy storage solution that was very powerful. So if you think about pumped hydro, where you're pumping water up on a mountain to store it for later use, we're actually doing pump hydro, but we're doing it into the earth. And just like pumped hydro that goes up, when you pump it into the earth, the deeper you are, the more power you're actually generating. And so that's what we're doing. We've got a energy storage solution where we're pumping water into a fracture during the times where demand is low. And then when the demand peaks, we're letting that fracture basically close on that fluid and it jettisons the fluid back to the surface where you can put it through a hydro turbine and generate electricity. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. It's fascinating, but what about carbon capture as well? Is that something that you all can also help with given I mean, what you're saying seems like it would be similar. Yeah, we we aren't working on carbon capture. However, we are working and, and talking to different carbon capture companies. And the reason is, is because we've developed with a uh, research institute called Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, a supercritical CO2 turbine 
which is not only smaller than organic rake and cycle turbines used in, in geothermal, but the amount of electricity for the same amount of heat is double. So if you have a certain amount of heat coming out of a well, you're going to get double the electricity. So the conversation we're having with these uh, carbon capture companies is at some point, rather than using water to harvest the heat out of the earth, we would like to work with them. And when they pump CO2 into the earth and sequester it, we would like to produce that to the surface, put it through our CO2 turbine, produce electricity, and then re-sequester it back into the earth. We feel like that that's one of our future uh, technology developments as far as the storage and or the geothermal. Is there a, a theoretical limit to the energy production that this could provide? I mean, is there only so deep you can drill and, and so much? Is it, it sounds scalable, but I, I, don't, I don't know. Is it just limitless? It's definitely scalable, you know, limitless, depends on who you talk to. So there's a lot of great companies out there that are working on space age technologies on how to drill deeper and hotter. And and we're watching them with fascination. Very, very impressive. So I think what the limit in my mind is, Brian, is again, the levelized cost of energy. It's got to be cost competitive. And as long as we can keep it in that range of being cost competitive, then yeah, I, I think we're fine. But I wouldn't say it's 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 limitless, though, because, again, if it's not in that range of being cost competitive, then it's not going to it's not going to be something that the communities would pursue. Right. And, and I really like that you keep hammering home that point because, you know, there's doing well and doing good. I think a lot of people want there to be different solutions to the energy issues that we face, but they have to be cost competitive. They have to be economical. And so hammering those costs down, I think for, if it results in cheaper usage for the end user and the client, capital will allocate to those solutions, right? I would love to hear your thoughts. Just you're in Houston is kind of the mecca of geothermal industry and tech. What is the current state of like the cost of capital to run your company, to, to raise money around your company? And how does that interplay with the Inflation Reduction Act and the incentives that it provides for groups like yourself? So, yeah, we are a startup company. We're actually, you know, right now raising funds in a Series A fundraise. And, you know, I think as you're pointing out, you know, the the upfront cost of capital for what we're doing is pretty pretty large. I mean, it's very similar to oil and gas. I mean, you have to drill a well, you have to build a power plant. So, you know, the upfront cost of capital is is very high. So you have to find the type of investors that understand that and that are in basically the game for the long haul, right? So we, it's hard for us to compete with, you know, investors that want to put money into software, for example, where you can have a turnaround time that's, that's pretty quick and, and, and a lower upfront cost of capital. Now, in, in regards to the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, the, the, the tax incentives under the IRA are just phenomenal. I do think, you know, not only for the geothermal base load, but also for energy storage. And then energy storage is not necessarily, for the first time, it's not, it doesn't have to be tied to a certain type of technology. In other words, you can just do energy storage without tying it to wind or solar. So I think the tax incentives for the IRA or under the IRA are really going to greatly increase the amount of investors coming in and, of course, the amount of companies that are coming in to, to help solve the challenge of geothermal and or energy storage. So I think it's going to be exciting nine or 10 years ahead of us. And the article kept, not 
it, it referred a number of times to the Department of Energy, I guess, in context of the IRA about earth shots, right? Like a moonshot back in the 60s, I guess. Do you like that term? Do you use that term when you pitch your company? We probably don't use that term as often as, as the DOE. I mean, the DOE has really great visions on what to do with, with geothermal as well as other renewable energies. You know, again, I, I think the, what, the, the focus that we have is really bringing the cost down and, and, and doing it in two ways, one through just pure cost reductions, but also um, through increasing efficiency. So we're doing a lot of engineering work on how to either decrease the cost or, or improve the efficiency so that we can generate electricity at a lower cost. But yeah, the DOE has a lot of programs out there. They've got a lot of funding opportunities. And so I think their vision of the earth shot, I, I, yeah, I think it's impressive and, and hopefully it's going to drive us more quickly to a place of where we can be commercial with, with geothermal. So we've referenced IRA, we've referenced the DOE, kind of the alphabet soup of government programming. There, from what I've read, a big challenge here is the permitting process because the majority of, it, it kind of reminded me of, I'm a big skier. And so I guess from what I've read, kind of like ski mountains, the majority of these areas that are ripe for this technology leverage are federally owned properties. Navigating the maze of bureaucracy to get to the permitting process, what does that look like for you all today? Yeah, so you're, you're spot on, Brian. If you go out west where a lot of the properties are owned by the federal gov government, then the permitting cycle is four to five years. However, we're, we're focused more on Texas and Louisiana for, for a few reasons. One, you know, there's great geothermal potential in Texas and Louisiana. Another is, you know, Texas and Louisiana have, you know, drilled oil and gas wells for years and years, and, and, and the permitting is actually under the same regulatory agencies as oil and gas. So getting permits in, in Louisiana and Texas is a lot more streamlined. I mean, you can get a permit in Texas in a matter of, of weeks, maybe months, but definitely not years. And so we're focusing on, you know, doing geothermal in these states uh, for those reasons so that we can move more quickly. And then at, at that point, you know, if it makes sense to move to uh, federal land, we will do that. But you're spot on. Federal land uh, leasing is is quite complex and, and very long. And is there is there hope that that changes? Are there are there efforts to truncate that time and the process and paperwork? I would hope so. I mean, I, you know, if, if, as you said, the DOE talks about, you know, earth shots and to do an earth shot, you need to be able to move very quickly. And yeah, you need to be able to test technologies. You need to be able to get them into the field. And if you've got a permitting time of four or five years, it's going to be difficult to do that. So I, I would, I would hope that that's being looked at and revisited because be, being able to get geothermal up on the learning curve and, and get these costs down, we're going to need to move quickly. And if it takes five years to get a permit, then you're, you're looking at, you know, many, many years out in the future before you can actually crack that nut. Yeah. I mean, and especially, I think it's challenging for people to understand, you know, I raise capital from private investors to talk to a private investor and say, you're looking at, if five years is permitting, you're looking at 10 years, you know, 20 years, that's just a really long time horizon to be illiquid. And which means your cost of capital goes up precipitously, I would assume, which makes it harder for you all to be in business. So if you're listening, call your 
representative in Congress and tell them to fix this so that we can get moving on some of these things. But it's so interesting to hear you talk about Texas and Louisiana versus other jurisdictions because we've had oil gas folks on the show and they say, you know, some of them just like, well, they won't go to New Mexico. They won't go to Colorado. They're hesitant to go to Pennsylvania just because the jurisdictional differences are are immense. So that makes a lot of sense of where you all are focused on. What about industries? Are there early industries that you think are better suited for this technology or that you're targeting early on to deploy into? You know, the the demand is huge. So every industry, because of their EGS goals, they're really looking for clean energy. So is there one that's better than another? Maybe or maybe not. One thing that we found interesting as of late is there's a lot of industrial processes that require not only electricity, but heat. I mean, direct heat. And so what we've had conversations with, you know, food manufacturing uh, companies, we've had conversations with companies that do fragrances and flavors. And again, they need not only electricity, but heat. And so what we're, what we're modeling is that we can drill a well and we can produce electricity from the geothermal but because of the heat that we still have remaining, you could call it waste heat, you could actually supply the heat side of that equation with the, the, you know, the waste heat from your geothermal operation. So I think those are going to be some really nice operations with the, you know, in these industries that not only need the heat, but the electricity. Yeah, that's, I thought about that. So manufacturing production that requires just immense amounts of heat would make a lot of sense. You'd be able to reduce their costs precipitously, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause right now, if you think about it, most industrial applications that need heat, they're actually turning electricity into heat or natural gas into heat. And that's just, I mean, it's, it's especially turning electricity into heat is not very efficient at all. So what we're doing is taking heat and then just using the waste part of it for their heat their heat applications. So that's going to be much more efficient uh, use of the energy that's that's coming out of the ground. If people are tracking this space, EGS and the industry, what's a what's a, a sign that adoption is coming or that you all are kind of switched over into the other side in terms of the cost and the applicability? Because it seems like these technologies are really, really far away. And then they have this pivot moment where they become, you know, inevitable in many ways. Yeah. So I, l- l- let's talk about the current utility electricity generation just in the U.S. So unfortunately, geothermal is less than 1%. So you got fossil fuels at 60%, you know, nuclear is 20 and then wind and solar make up the rest. But geothermal is less than 1%. So I think the sign will be when that geothermal percentage grows. That's going to be definitely a sign that, you know, we have, we as an industry have figured out how to move the cost in a direction that it needs to be. And, and also that geothermal is considered not only cost effective, but also reliable, you know, reliable piece of energy. So I think that's going to be the telltale. I, I, I guess the other is sometimes we read reports of, you know, future energy demand and where, you know, where that electricity or that energy is going to come from. And unfortunately, geothermal sometimes doesn't even make the pie chart. So I think that'll be another indication once, you know, geothermal has some commercial plants 
that are up and running, showing that they can be reliable. And then we start making those pie charts. I think that'll be another sign that you know, geothermal is on its way. What is the biggest challenge that you see in terms of driving down that cost? Is it just reiterating on the technology? It is, is it navigating through some of these bureaucratic minefields of actually being able to put the technology to use in the field? What do you think the biggest hurdle is for you all? I do think it is the technology. And then if you combine that with the fact that you've got uh, a need for the, the large upfront capital cost in order to improve that technology and engineer that technology. I think that's, th those are the two challenges. You, you have to get the technology in place and then it's just a, a large upfront capital cost. So to move quickly, you, you, you need, you need a lot of money and, and you need to be able to invest it uh, in a way that you can uh, drive geothermal in, in the direction that it needs to go more quickly. And what is the, you know, obviously we're recording this in April of 2023. It's, um, a challenging time to be in tech, right? Given everything that's happened. Do you consider yourselves a technology company, an energy company, energy tech? I mean, and what has been the response from limited partners or, you know, potential investors as you've talked to them recently? Yeah, no, we consider ourselves an energy company, but an energy company that has a foundation in technology. So we do recognize again that there's a, a myths, a myths amount of potential in geothermal. But we need the technology to open that up. And, and so when we, yeah, when we talk to investors, they do recognize that where we are on the scale of risk is we're still in that technology risk area. We're not yet in, you know, the area where you're just, ha where you just have scaling risk. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's some investors that want to wait until the technology risk has been mitigated and they, they want to, you know, invest in the scaling risk, but not the technology risk. But you've got to find the, the sweet spot with your investors that want to uh, actually, you know, get involved early and early enough to help with that technology development. Yeah, it seems, and that's not my world, but it seems like you read a lot of headlines about these you know, billionaires, big families, tech folks that are very focused on energy solutions and fusion. But, you know, the reality when the rubber hits the road and you go out there and talk to LPs is probably a lot different. Well, Cindy, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been terrific, super interesting space. And thank you for imparting the, the knowledge that you have to have a subject matter expert come on and talk about this is just fascinating. If people are interested in connecting with you to learn more about the company, the investment opportunity, What's the best way for them to to learn more and connect with you? I'm on LinkedIn. We've got a website, uh, sagegeosystems.com. Yeah, just reach out and I, I'm very good at responding back to anybody that's uh, wanting to learn more, but it'd be great to hear from people. Yeah, I shot you a cold note on LinkedIn and you responded and now here you are. So I definitely encourage people to reach out. It's super cool what they're doing. And just that whole like Houston geothermal startup world is just fascinating. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Please do leave a review, comment, let us know the, your favorite part of the conversation. Cindy, one last question. We ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Absolutely. I walk every day. In the morning or in the evenings? In the evening. I'm, I, I, I'm not a morning person. So yeah, in the evening is, is my favorite time of the day. Awesome. Well, Cindy, thanks so much for sharing. Best of luck moving forward. Please keep us updated and thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.